Beginning in uh, the year 1934, I know you're all scratching your head saying, okay, what happened in 1934? Hmm. Well, let me tell you what happened in 1934. General Mills began putting pictures of athletes on their box of Wheaties cereal. How's that? Since 1934, they've been doing that, and it was, I believe, 1958 that they began to put celebrity pictures on the box of Wheaties, all to promote their advertising campaign, Breakfast of Champions. That's exactly right. They've been doing it for over 70 years, so I guess it must work. Right? They would have abandoned it if it hadn't. But you know, the Lord God does not operate on that kind of a basis of celebrity status. The Lord Jesus Christ, the night before he chose his 12 disciples, we're told he went on the mountain and he prayed all night long. And I bet he did. Because he knew this, the character and nature of the men that he was choosing. They were a somewhat motley crew to be his emissaries to the world. Fishermen from the province of Galilee. That was the, the out-of-the-way, nowheresville, backwater part of the nation. He chose fishermen. He chose tax collectors. The despised, the outcasts, those that had sold out their national interests to Rome in order to get a cut of the tax-gathering machine of the Roman Empire. He chose a zealot, one who wanted to overthrow the Roman rule by violent means. I always thought it must have been interesting to have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot walking down the road side by side discussing politics, right? But that's who he chose, and of course we know that he chose one who was a traitor. Beloved, I uh, suspected a fair amount of his prayer that night probably revolved around that very issue. God does not choose by celebrity status. And as unlikely as those men were to be the inner group, the inner circle for a worldwide movement, there is one thing they shared in common. And that was they had a passionate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were, all those except, of course, Judas, the pretender, but all the rest of those men were drawn to this man, Christ. John chapter 6, after Jesus had sent away the crowds, thinned out the crowds by his, humanly speaking, unreasonable demands of discipleship, turned to the twelve and said, Are you going to leave me now too? And Peter, acting as their spokesman, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6. Contact with the Lord Jesus Christ had changed those men's lives. I know a man who... In high school in the 1970s, was a self-professed atheist. Took no 
end to the pleasure in tormenting those who professed outward allegiance to Jesus Christ, would go out of his way to make their lives miserable. Then one day in college, the Lord Jesus Christ encountered him in such a powerful way that it changed that man. He was no longer a tormentor of the followers of Christ, but today he's a preacher of the gospel. Contact with the Lord Jesus Christ changed that man's life. What do that young atheist, that former atheist, and those early disciples, what is it that they have in common? They loved Jesus Christ. John tells us in 1 John 4.19 that we love because he first loved us. The love of Christ had so transformed those men that their lives were completely turned on their heads. The direction they were heading was so altered that they were going in an entirely different direction. The former manner of their life was gone. All things had become new for them. The love of Christ, beloved, transforms people. Open your Bibles to John 15. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 16 this morning. Under the title, that Love Transforms All. In this section here of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus reveals three ways that His love transforms us so that we will abide in that love. John 15, beginning in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. We're still here in the upper room. Jesus is continuing to instruct with what precious little time remains until Judas and the Roman soldiers arrive back to arrest him. Every word that he speaks is so carefully chosen. There is an economy of expression in this section here. There's no time to waste. In these remaining moments and the wee hours of the night, Jesus Christ is 
striving to prepare these disciples for his dramatic departure and for the catastrophe that is going to come upon them and scatter them. And so he speaks to them here, transitioning from his earlier use of the metaphor of the vine into talking about the power of his redeeming love. And the need for the emissaries or for his disciples to act as emissaries for him. He's, he's going away. It's not going to be long now. This whole enterprise is going to be entrusted into the hands of these 11 men. Former fishermen from Galilee. Former tax collectors. A former zealot. These are not celebrities these are not the best and the brightest, those of high social standing or, or professional achievement. These are ordinary men. Ordinary men that have been so transfixed and transformed by their contact with the Lord Jesus Christ that they are going to be entrusted in the grace of God with the greatest missionary enterprise the world has ever known. It is the love of Christ that will transform them. And beloved, it is the love of Christ that transforms you and I. The first way that it transforms is here in verses 19 or 9 through 13. And that is that Jesus' love transforms our orientation. Our orientation. Prior to our conversion to Christ, our lives were characterized according to the scripture by all sorts of wickedness, all sorts of self-interest, self-bias. Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's, by the way, not an exhaustive list. That is merely a representative list of what those without Jesus Christ are all about. They are interested in one thing and one thing only, and that's what makes them feel good. That is their orientation. That is the orientation of those without God. But after repenting of their selfish, unbelieving ways, turning to embrace by grace the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on their behalf, their lives, like our lives, have been transformed. Isn't that true? Our orientation has changed. Instead of looking first and foremost as to what's in it for me, we have begun to look outside of ourselves for something bigger something greater, something more godly. In that same passage, Paul goes on and calls it the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the things that now characterize the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a massive change of orientation that goes on, and it comes about by the transforming power of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look here at verse 9. 
He has been exhorting his disciples to produce fruit, to remain in the vine. Now he, he kind of moves on here and, he, and he's, he's affirming his love for them. Look, he says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you, but, but you need to do something with that love, and that is that you must abide in that love. You must abide in it. You must remain in it. The love of Jesus Christ for you. And, and notice the way he describes that love. The analogy that he uses in verse 9. Take a look. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. What kind of love does the Lord Jesus Christ have for his people? The same kind of love that the Father has for him. That is a profound thought. What kind of love does the Father have for Christ? It is pure. It is complete. It is deep. It is passionate. It is personal. It is intelligent. It is enduring. And it is timeless. The love between the members of the Godhead is the model by which Christ loves us. The Father said at the Son's baptism, This is my beloved, right? In whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, As much as the Father has loved me, I now love you. But you need to remain in that love. It is that love that will transform you in it, and you must remain within it. You must abide in that love. How? How do we abide within the love of Christ, that transforming love? The answer is here in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. The analogy of the love of the Father for the Son is then used, to, or the relationship is then used to talk about what it means to abide in the love of Christ. How did Jesus keep the commandments of his Father? He kept them in perfection. He kept them in perfection. All that the Father desired to do, or desired for him to do, the Lord Jesus Christ did. And he uses that as the analogy and as the standard to call his disciples to that kind of love. This is a high bar. Indeed, this is a bar over which we cannot vault. But the grace of God work within us, transform us, conform us to the image of Christ, and produce within us a desire to be obedient to the commandments of our Lord. Abide in my love. Keep my commandments. There's a simple mathematical equation here. Abiding equals obeying. What does it mean to abide in the love of Jesus Christ? It simply means to obey. To obey His commandments. There are many writers who want to fill up this expression with all kinds of pious-sounding religious jargon, but Jesus Christ makes it very, very plain here. Abide in me equals obey me. 
Obey me. Independence upon the Holy Spirit of God. Walk in obedience to me. Beloved, the outward characterization of an inward faith is an obedient lifestyle. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, we're to put off the old man and to put on the new. There's no escaping it. Obedience measures abiding. Our example is Jesus Christ, right? Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. An examination of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals one who walked by the Spirit of God. Hebrews is very clear to tell us that He suffered in the flesh, that He was subject to the trials and the tribulations as we are. Yet He walked in dependence upon the Spirit of God. He lived in obedience to His Father. It is not our obedience that make us children of God, but it is our obedience that demonstrate our status as children of the Father. What is the result of this obedience? Is this just a suck-it-up, kind of gutted-out lifestyle? Notice in verse 11, he goes on to speak of it. He said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. There is a joy in obedience. There is an incredible sense of closeness with the Father when we live in obedience to His Word. All through this section, Jesus Christ is setting up the, as the model for which we are to strive the relationship between He and His Father. That is the love that He has for us. That is the level of obedience that He is calling us to. That is the joy that He promises us, verse 11, that is available to us when we live in the way that He has called us to live. Our level of joy is in direct proportion to our level of obedience. There is joy in the Christian life when we walk in obedience. There is no end to the misery that we bring upon ourselves and others when we walk in disobedience. The Christian life is not barren. It is not colorless. It is not tasteless. It is a life of joy. But it is very much a life of obedience. Do you want to have joy in your Christian life? Then you are to live it according to the manufacturer's instructions. If you are like some of us, when you buy something new, you open the box and take it out, right? And they include that foolish paperwork called instruction manuals, written in nine different languages, none of which you can understand, including English. And so the first thing you would do, guys, is what? Discard this. I don't need that thing. I know how this works. All right? Plug this in here, stick that in there, and turn it on. That's how it works. Well, the Christian life is not quite that simple. There is an owner's manual to given to us. 
It's called the Word of God. And we, and we live in accordance with the owner's manual and we will begin to sense the joy for which we have been designed. And there is no end to that joy. Even in the midst of the most gut-wrenching occurrences of life, there is joy to be had. Our joy is not dependent upon our situation. Not when things are going well, we experience joy, but it is the, it is the ability to experience the God-given joy in the midst of the most difficult parts of life. Over in 1 Peter, Peter's talking to a suffering church, and, and he says, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I remember my Greek professor. He said that that kind of joy being talked there, that that they're greatly rejoicing in is what he called Toyota joy. You remember that old Toyota commercial where the guy would jump up and click his heels together? And I'm not going to even try it here, but that's Toyota joy. That's the kind of joy that is available to those who are abiding in Christ Jesus in his love through obedience. Keep my commandments, he says. Keep my commandments. Well, which one, Jesus? Well, verse 12, he, he boils it all down for you. It's not a whole big, long set that's hard to memorize. He'll just kind of boil it all down to one, won't he? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That makes it simple. To abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, to express the joy that has been built in by the manufacturer into the, into the relationship is to obey the commandment and the commandment is to love one another with the love that Christ has loved for us. That's why I said this, love transforms our orientation. It is to go from the love of self to the love of others. Apostle Paul in Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. We don't need a bunch of rules and regulations. All we need is one. Just love one another. Earlier the same evening, over in chapter 13, Verse 34, he says it again, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I has loved you, you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. What does this love look like? Well, we can thank the Apostle Paul in chapter 13, can't we, of his Corinthian epistle. where he just speaks a little bit about love to a church that does anything but love one another. He says love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love 
is oriented to others. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. They've seen a model of his love in the three years they've walked with him. They've seen it vividly demonstrated just a couple of hours earlier as he donned the apron of a slave and washed their filthy feet. They're going to see it modeled in the most incredible way in a matter of a few hours as he hangs on a cross bearing their sin. This is the kind of love that you're being called to. This is what it means to abide in the love of Christ. This is a change of an orientation brought about by the love of Christ poured out in us. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. The love that we're being called to, beloved, is all about sacrifice. It is all about other orientation. It is all about living not for yourself, but for someone else. The model is Christ. The standard is impossible unless the love of Christ has first transformed you. It's amazing to me that Christ calls here for a sacrifice that knows no bounds. There are no provisos. There are no caveats. There are no carve-outs. There are no love until it hurts and then go a little bit more. No love. Compare yourself to your neighbor, see how much they love, and then love a little more than that. The standard he puts up is the perfection within the, own, within the Godhead. And he says, this is how you are to love. He raises an incredible standard, an impossible standard. It would frustrate. But it's amazing to me that he gives us what he commands of us. It is the love of Christ poured out in our heart that has so transformed us that we can begin to love others the way he has loved us. Christianity is not a religion based on our ability to reach out to God. It is God's reaching out to us. He'll make it clear here just in a few moments when we get to verse 16. Beloved, He gives us what He commands of us. And with the Apostle Paul, we can only say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. The love of Christ transforms our orientation from inwardly focused to outwardly focused. Secondly, the love of Christ transforms our outlook. It transforms our outlook. We go from mere servile obedience to an obedience motivated out of love and friendship with God. We, we move from a, a, a worldly blindness 
to a God-given perspective. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You are my friends, he says, verse 14, if you do what I command you. Friendship is expressed in obedience. The friends of God are those that obey God. It is a test of relationships. It is, a, it is the assurance of salvation. When we walk in obedience, we know of the love of God for us. And by the way, the verb tense here in verse 14, beloved, when it says, if you do what I command you, there is a present tense verb. It is the idea of, a, of ongoing habitual obedience. It's interesting, we're here in verse 15. He says, I no longer call you slaves. According to John's gospel, he never ever formally did call them slaves, although he hints at it earlier in the evening in chapter 13. But what he's drawing out here is something that perhaps is a little obscure to us, but obvious to them in the culture, slave culture in which they lived. A slave was called to a level of obedience, wasn't he? But a slave... Obeyed, but they, they obeyed without knowing the reason for what it was they'd been commanded. They were just told to obey, and that was good enough. Jesus says we moved beyond that now to just merely obeying because it's good enough. And we've been drawn into this relationship where Christ has now called us friends. And, and with a friend, you share the intimacy of your heart. There is a closeness to the relationship. There is a... There's an involvement of friends, one in, an, in another's life, and a, and a sharing of the plan and the purpose. Jesus said that you have moved beyond just merely being obedient to the Word of God. Now you share a relationship of friendship with God. He is sharing with them in these last hours what is to come. All right, look again at verse 15. All things that I heard from my Father, he says, I have made known to you. He's talking about his crucifixion that's rapidly approaching. He's told them just earlier in the evening, one of you will betray me. He has told them that he is preparing a place for them in the Father's house and that he will come and receive them unto himself. He has told them that there is a helper coming, the Holy Spirit so they will not be left as orphans. He is, he is bringing them into the plans of God so that they do not have to walk just in a, in a measure of servile obedience, but they now have, have come into that family kind of relationship enjoyed among friends. We see this illustrated in the Old Testament in Abraham. Abraham is called the friend of God. Do you remember when uh, the Lord was getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He came down to Abraham. Remember that? 
And he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And then he clues Abraham in on the plans that are coming. And of course, Abraham enters into that Middle Eastern um, rug bargaining motif with God about, you know, will you destroy the city if there's so many righteous? And he keeps, you know, I beg of you, you know, just one more time here. Kind of whittles them down. But Abraham enjoyed that relationship of friendship, and God clued Abraham into his secret counsels. Jesus has clued the disciples in to his secret counsels, those of the Father. And, beloved, for, for us who walk in their shoes, we have been clued in as well. That's why I say it's a, it's a change of outlook. It's a change of outlook for us. We now know what the world does not know. Paul says it this way over in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 4. He says, For yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth bangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. We walk as friends of God. And He has given us, He's brought us into His counsel, and He has given us a clue, an outlook as to what the future will bear. I mean, there are people all over the world who want to know what's going to happen in the future, right? There's no end to people's attempts to figure out what's going to happen in the future. But you sitting here, you already know what's going to happen in the future because God has revealed it to you. It's sitting right on your laps, the form of the Word of God. God has brought you in and made known to you these secret counsels. So our outlook has been changed. We now see things the way God sees them. Based on the transforming love of Christ. Third, it transforms our objective. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give to you. It would be easy to, um, to deceive ourselves into thinking that um, there's some sort of mutuality going on here in this friendship relationship, right? You know, we, uh, we chose Jesus, he chose us. We kind of come into this as an equal partner. Or we, uh, we could see that it was a good deal. And so uh, we attached ourselves to Christ. Having evaluated the options, we chose this one as the best. I mean, Jesus will have none of that nonsense. He says very clearly, these, you know, they're laced through the Gospel of John are these strong predestinarian statements. This is just another one of them. It's, kind of, it's, it's like the reins on a horse. It kind of jerks and pulls you up straight for a moment to recognize. In the midst of this relationship of friendship, do not forget that the friendship begins with God, not with you. You did not choose me. I chose you, he says. I chose you and I appointed you. You know, beloved, in ancient times, disciples would choose their own 
teacher, philosopher, rabbi. They would, they would pick someone they wanted to be like. Luke 6.40 says that when a, when a pupil or a disciple is fully matured, he'll be just like his teacher. And so they would pick somebody and attach themselves to him as their, as their philosopher, as their teacher, as their rabbi. We do similar things. People choose colleges based on faculty. They choose classes in school based on who the teacher is. They, they want to be with this person, so they make those kind of choices. Jesus wants you to know that it's absolutely clear that your choice of Him originates in His choice of you. You did not pick Him out of a lineup. He picked you out of a cesspool. And He drew you to Himself. And He drew you to Himself with a purpose. And here it is. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It is a twofold purpose. It is a purpose of going and it is a purpose of bearing. Jesus plucked us out of the mass of humanity that He might send us forth as His emissaries. But the book of Acts unfolds that very act, doesn't it? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He appointed these men, these 11, this motley crew with which we can easily identify to go forth and to be his spokesman. Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ, chosen and appointed by God to bring forth His message to a lost and dying world. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You are that you may proclaim, Peter says. You are that you may proclaim. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and to keep on bearing fruit. Verse 16, that your fruit should remain. Not sporadic outbursts of fruit, but an ongoing life of fruitfulness for God. He has changed our orientation by the love of Christ. And these activities, notice the end of the verse, are done not of our strength, not of our will, but in dependence upon the power of God in prayer. Look again. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. The context is fruit-bearing and going in a loving relationship to God. It is calling upon God in prayer to send us and to enable us to fulfill that which He requires of us. And the Father delights in answering that kind of prayer. Love transforms us. 
we head out as emissaries of Christ. And by the way, I want you to notice, just let your eyes drop down to verse 18. It's not going to be a smooth path. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You're going to go, you're going to bear fruit, and you're going to do it in a hostile world. And so, beloved, you need to pray. You need to pray. Has the love of Christ captured, transformed your heart this morning? Has the orientation of your life changed from self to others? Has the outlook of your life changed from a world's perspective to God's perspective? Has the objective of your life been transformed from what's in it for me? How do I, how do I get the most out of life? How do, how do I live peacefully, quietly? To one who says, I'll go wherever you'll send me, Lord. These changes have not occurred in you. You need the grace of God. Call out to Him. Call out to Christ to do what He has commanded for you to do. Embrace Him by faith. End of our time here this morning, we will have um, some Folks will be standing over there by the cross. They will be available for a spiritual counsel if you want to talk further on these things. Spirit of God, perhaps searching your heart and letting you know that you need to do business with Him. You come, you talk. Gentlemen, if you will come forward, we will celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us.